From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good afternoon, America. My name is Joseph Backholm. Welcome to Washington Watch. I am sitting in today for Tony Perkins, and it is my pleasure to be doing so as we wrap up the week, send you into the weekend. We've got a great lineup for you, so buckle up because in the next 45, 60 minutes, I guess is what we got here, um, we are going to... uh, Fill you in on everything that you need to know from the week, and uh, we're going to end the conversation today with a conversation about Christian nationalism. You've probably heard that word a lot. We're going to think biblically about Christian nationalism with David Clausen as we figure out how are Christians supposed to think about their country. Is nationalism bad? Is Christian nationalism particularly bad? We'll break that down. We're also going to talk about uh, state legislation. What's going on in your state with respect to Women's sports. Are the legislators in your state doing anything about the uh, the possibility that men are going to be joining all the women's sports teams? Uh, we're also going to talk with Dr. Michelle Critella about her new paper, Sex is a Biological Variable of Medical Significance. So kind of stating the obvious, we used to make fun of uh, studies that, that studied things that seemed to be obvious, but... Uh, uh, here we are. It actually seems necessary to be studying whether men and women are different in a medical sense. And Dr. Uh, Michelle Critella it, will be with us to talk about that. But to start off the program, we are going to cover what's going on at the nation's capital right now as we speak. Something called Votorama is happening in the nation's capital around the uh, $1.9 trillion spending Uh, I think we call it COVID relief package. Some have called it a stimulus package. Whatever the term we're using for it is, it was passed by the House. It is now in the Senate. The Senate is debating that. Uh, We're going to bring in Representative Jackie Walorski from the great state of Indiana to discuss that with us. But before we do, uh, Bobby, why don't you play that clip of Senator Graham? uh, Because we've got him introducing kind of what is happening in the Senate as we speak. The economy is showing signs of life. The vaccine is out. Uh, things are looking better. Seems to me we'd want to slow down and spend the money not spent wisely before we embark on a $1.9 trillion spending spree. Most of it doesn't have much to do, if anything, with COVID. They're doing it because they can, and there will be a lot of amendments talking about better ways to spend this money. And that is Senator Lindsey Graham offering his perspective on the COVID relief bill that is presently being debated uh, on the Senate floor to give her perspective on what happened in the House and also maybe prognosticate a little bit about the Senate. We welcome Representative Jackie Walorski. Representative Walorski, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Joseph, for the invite. I would call that bill that you're talking about the Pelosi payout. There is nothing about COVID in this bill, about COVID relief. 9% of $109 trillion is actually set aside to go to vaccines and to help COVID-related issues. The rest of this is a Nancy Pelosi payout around the country from the folks that supported her and from their super far-left radical socialist agenda. That is all that's in this bill. You know, we dealt with it a couple days, a couple nights ago. And um, obviously it passes the House floor because elections have consequences and they are the majority on the floor. 
and um, it came through the Ways and Means Committee, of which I'm a member. So I tried to amend it. I tried to get the Democrats to uh, take an amendment to put the Hyde Amendment inside this bill. And obviously not one taker on the Democratic side. They wanted nothing to do with that. And so they just broke, you know, about a half a century of uh, precedence on these issues of, you know, pro-life and taxpayer money going to fund abortions in this country. I mean, it is reprehensible. Well, and you you do have very recent experience with this thing. What, in your opinion, what's the, the thing that troubled you most about this? Is it individual policy choices, individual spending decisions, the sheer size of it? What were you most concerned about? Well, I would tell you, as being a pro-life um, you know, representative and, and having been on the side of life all of my uh, time in public office, I was absolutely livid that they would take this Hyde Amendment, which basically bans, in a bipartisan way, it bans taxpayer money from funding um, elective abortions. This, this, con- this bill, Joseph, as you know, has been around since Gerald Ford in the 1970s. We've gone through all the presidents since the 1970s, including President Obama. And here we come into this presidency of Joe Biden and Pelosi and AOC, and they stopped that precedence. They're using about $414 billion in that bill to fund abortions, and the the receiver of most of that is none other than Planned Parenthood. So that's enough right there, I think, for anybody who's pro-life understanding, you know, in my district, you know, double-income hard-working Hoosiers that believe in life, and 60% of our fellow Americans believe as well that we should not be using taxpayer funds. If that doesn't get you, and if that doesn't get you fired up, then you look at just the 9% silo that's actually going to what's happening. Majority of that money, Joseph, is not even going to be allocated in this calendar year. It's going to be allocated in 22 and 23. If we are having problems with COVID in 22 and 23, we got bigger issues in this bill. I mean, you know, we are watching COVID disappear. The vaccine is working. Our state's about ready to pop open in Indiana, and our economy is just roaring back. So unnecessary spending, I think it's a power grab. And there's still another trillion dollars sitting out there from the end of the year that has never been spent. So I think the prudent thing to do, which is what the Republicans was, was you know, hang on here and don't spend that money until you go back and figure out where the money really needs to be spent. I know it doesn't need to be spent in California and New York bailing them out. And so I would tell you this is a gigantic power play disaster for the economy. You know, it, it occurs to me, and I haven't done the math on this because this is just kind of stream of consciousness. When 1.9 trillion, I think the number that's going to the checks are expected to go out are 1,400 dollars per person. Is that yeah. right? Something like that. Yep. How much money? I mean, there's 300 million people in the country, 320 million, whatever. I don't know how many eligible recipients there are, but if this actually went out as cash cash distributions to affected people. I think you're looking at a lot more than $1,400 per person, but in fact, and, and not even that I think that should be done, but to your, to your larger point of this is just spending on just political priorities, not necessarily COVID priorities, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. This is Pelosi putting a train, an underground train, the Pelosi train in San Francisco. This is giving Schumer a bridge. This is this is taking every single part of what we've been talking about with socialism on the left and Pelosi's socialist radical agenda. This is funding that radical agenda. And I think that, you know, the, the scary part of this, Joseph, is 
if this thing gets through the Senate, which they're doing everything they can, you know, uh, to get it through the Senate and goes to the president's desk, this is a reality. This is going to hurt America. It's going to hurt every single taxpayer in this country. For those receiving $1,400 checks, it takes the government $6,000 to be able to do that per person. So, you know, bailing out states and bailing out big spending governors, that should have nothing to do with what's in this bill. That has everything to do with with what's in this bill. How did we get comfortable with the the trillions? I mean, I don't know that I really can wrap my head around how much money that is, right? Because a million dollars is a lot of money. A billion is a thousand million. But a trillion is a thousand billion dollars, and we're spending 1.9 trillion. So the amount of money that we're talking about here is ridiculous. And of course, this isn't money that's like sitting in some vault somewhere. This is no. money that's going to be no. borrowed, right? So our grandkids, Absolutely. our great grandkids are going to be paying for this. So we're just, you know, it's a spending spree for political purposes that people yet to be born are going to try to pay off one day. But yeah, get your head around that. Yeah. That being said, how did we get comfortable with this? I feel like in, in my memory that spending, there's been, you know, differences of opinion about the appropriateness of government spending and how much should be spent. But the idea of just trillions of dollars, just kind of throwing around just because it's kind of political favors and we know we don't have it and we're going to print it and we're going to borrow it and all these things. How did Washington DC become comfortable with this? You know, because I think, you know, this is a big, bloated, bureaucratic government. And when you look back, you know, over the last couple of decades, every president, not just, uh, you know, one president, every president has overspent. Uh, You know, they kind of look at, well, you know, you know, we'll work on this tomorrow. But, you know, when you talk about what's happening right now, I'll tell you what's going to happen now. Not only are they spending us into oblivion, they're going to tax every single person in this country on top of what they're doing to try to pay for it. And then when that money comes in, they're going to spend that too. So I would tell you that, you know, this is a time to absolutely be looking at, you know, uh, what we want as Americans and not allowing them to spend into socialism because that's exactly what they're doing. They're taking the most radical left-wing ideas that AOC and Pelosi can possibly conjure up and they are marching us into a massive government takeover of socialism, losing our free speech, losing the rights and the things that we believe, and totally taking the identity of this country and turning it around. I hear it every day in my district. The American people are stunned, just like you are, Joseph, and I am, at the speed at which these Democrats, with their trifecta of power, are ruining our country. Talk. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the Senate right now. Something called Votorama is the uh, is the term being used. Can you help people understand what's happening and what Votorama is? Yeah, so this is basically, um, it's a giant free-for-all that can last forever. And, you know, it's, it's both sides, and they're, they're doing heavy debate. They're trying to run amendments. The one thing that's happening, I'll tell you, is this runs in the, in the face of the public and people can, you know, watch it. What's actually happening here is Schumer's trying to cut deals. Schumer's trying to go behind the scenes as, as you know, the, they're voting over here. But what's really going on is he's looking for support. He's looking for Republicans that he can offer something to and pick off those votes. This is the master. Uh, it's kind of like a carousel and kind of watching, you know, uh, kind of watching a zoo at the same time. This is really confusing. It's long hours and they're going back to back with all of these different concepts and amendments. But you know, I was just uh, listening to a senator talk about the fact that 
for however long this goes on, whatever deals are cut, you know, we just have to pray that the Republicans hold on and give them no room whatsoever to pass this. So do you believe that Schumer right now is actually like offering pork to Republicans in exchange for their vote for in final passage? Is that oh, what you mean? Schumer is, yeah, Schumer is offering pork to anybody that will come along and vote with this. And it won't, and it won't just be this bill. Schumer is going to be offering pork from now till the end of next year's election, trying to get somebody to come on board with him. What? So this is this is uh, this is a typical play, power play with Schumer and trying to trying to make friends, you know, right. trying to get people to vote for one point nine trillion dollars of waste. Why is it important to him to try to get a Republican to vote for for this spending package? Well, I think the biggest thing that they are trying to do right now is, you know, Biden ran on being bipartisan. There hasn't been one one piece of bipartisan action happening in the House or the Senate since this uh, year started. And I think more than anything, they're looking for somebody to come across the line so they can call this bipartisan. But it just isn't there. It's the most partisan group I've ever worked with since I've been here. Representative Jackie Wolorski from the great state of Indiana, we thank you for your work in the House. Thank you so much for standing for life for your conviction, and thank you for joining us today on Washington Watch. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Joseph. Stay with us on the other side, and that's just the review of what's going on in the Senate today with Voterama. They're going to be there well into the night. If you are a nerd for such things, you can uh, jump onto C-SPAN or the website of your choice and watch them uh, debate long into the evening because they will be there until probably sunrise. Uh, Stay with us. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to Dr. Michelle Cretella of the American College of Pediatrics about her new study, Sex is a Biological Variable of Medical Significance. Does the science say that men and women are different? Hold your breath. We'll talk about it after the break. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the world's foremost violator of religious freedom. 
To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in today for Tony Perkins. And you can find this show and every show at TonyPerkins.com. And we are every day here on Washington Watch fighting for simple truths. We just talked to Representative Jackie Walorski about whether we should have a really, really good reason to spend $1.9 trillion or whether we should just do it because we can get a few votes by doing it. And now we're going to talk about another simple truth with Dr. Michelle Critella. She is the executive director of the American College of Pediatrics. She has recently written a paper, helped co-author a paper called Sex is a Biological Variable of Medical Significance. Dr. Critella, when you went to medical school, did you believe that you would be spending your time making the case that men and women are different Never in a million years did I or any of my classmates think we would come to this point, <laughs> for sure. How did we get here? Oh, a lot of social engineering, right? <laughs> well, I think you have to go to college for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So tell us about this study, um, why you thought it was necessary, and, and what you found. Well, it... it I don't think we have to convince any of your listeners that uh, modern culture has become really infatuated with the whole gender ideology and the lie that you can be stuck in the wrong body. Um, This uh, infatuation is so deep that even the medical field itself, uh, there are activists in medicine and psychology, uh, we're risking uh, erasing biological sex from medicine. And, and this is just unbelievable and incredibly dangerous. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the implications of that? This idea of erasing biological sex in medicine that you, that you wanted to study with this? Uh, essentially what, uh, what my co-author and I did, we, we scoured, went through the medical literature and, um, just, to reestablish for our peers and lay people that biological sex is real. Men and women differ in how they um, genetically, from the beginning, this, the this genetic signature of sex, whether you are male or female, is present in every nucleated cell of the body. And meaning the body cells are at that 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 most basic level are differ 
are different between males and females, and this impacts how diseases present in between the two sexes, how the two sexes um, uh, can respond to various drugs, toxins, even pain. Um, this is critical. The, the National Institutes of Health, for this reason, require that um, med medications, procedures, illnesses are studied in each of the sexes because we know that they are fundamentally uh, different. Could, could you give us an example? I mean, I, I'm not a doctor. Most of the people listening are not, are not physicians. But give us an example of why that difference matters in the day-to-day -day practice of medicine and why I should care whether my doctor believes that men and women are, are different. I mean, certainly, you know, there are certain diseases or illnesses that are far more prevalent in females and males, particularly um, diseases of the immune system, for example. Looking at something as common as heart attacks can present differently between women and men. And in fact, many women are, uh, women are more likely to be misdiagnosed. They could be going through a heart attack, but having symptoms more consistent with GI upset versus the classic crushing chest pain with radiation down the left arm, for example, which is more common in men. So it's important uh, from that perspective. And then um, actually the most common adverse drug reaction, um, uh, speaking, looking at the cardiac system, um, women are far more likely to um, suffer sudden cardiac arrest after the administration of certain medications be uh, because of a condition called prolonged QT syndrome. So it, it does have critical um, application in various medical settings. Um, and certainly, in policy, you know, it, it, we, we called this statement um, in, our, in our press release, sex differences are uh, significant for health and equality because it's obvious that you need to recognize these innate differences not only for the best health care, for precision medicine, but also for sound public policies. It is a fact that when you match males and females for athletic training, for example, that men are going to be bigger, faster, and stronger than women. And that has implications for not only competitive sports, but also when you're housing the two sexes together, um, whether that's domestic uh, abuse shelters, homeless shelters, prisons, and like, um, there are safety matters to take into consideration. You know, we, we hear a lot from others that while there are physiological differences between men and women at birth, that those differences can be accounted for through hormones. And all you have to do is give a woman testosterone or give a man estrogen, and suddenly uh, they're the same. Is that true? No. And it, again, it comes down to your genetics. There are over 6,500 genetic differences that have been identified between men and women, and these are in genes that are shared between the sexes. Um, this is a study that came out a couple years ago, um, a group of researchers out of Israel. They looked at at least 53 different um, body tissues and examined um, the genetics between the two sexes for these 53 different tissues and found at least 6,500 genetic differences between the sexes. So no, just, <laughs> I like to call it chemical drag, right? 
um, shooting someone up, shooting an individual up with opposite sex hormones does not transform their genetics, does not transform um, every single individual cell in that body. Dr. Michelle Cortella, thank you for joining us. And Dr. Cortella, could you tell our listeners, where can they find your paper? Where is that available? Sure. Go to bestforchildren.org. 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 Dr. Cortella, thank you for your courage in doing what you are doing, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And stay with us. We're going to continue this conversation to find out what's going on in men and women's sports issues around the state, your state legislature. What are they doing, if anything? We're going to have that conversation with Beth Beth Stelzer from Save Women's Sports. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back. To Washington Watch, Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins this Friday afternoon evening. And it is my pleasure to be here. You can find this program and all of our Washington Watch programs at, at uh, TonyPerkins.com. And we just had a great conversation with Michelle Cortella, Dr. Michelle Cortella, 
um, from the American College of Pediatrics about her study on whether sex is a biological variable of medical significance. And of course, her findings are what everybody knows already is the answer to that is yes. And and there's one other point I'd like to make that we didn't have time in that segment to get to is this idea that uh, in her in her study uh, uh, dealt with this is what the question of whether intersex people prove that there are in fact more than two sexes and that question is raised often by transgender advocates and, and policy advocates uh, that because there are some people who are intersex is the term and there are and there are other conditions um, where where genitalia and in, in in a reproductive system does not form perfectly um, as as it would be designed um, Aaron as God would have intended and that therefore is evidence that there are different genders or different sexes other than male and female and why is that not true why is why do internet sex people not prove that there are at least a third gen gender and then possibly four five six an infinite number of sexes like there are an infinite number of genders allegedly and the fact is those are those are disorders of sexual development they have there's there's you know when your body grows or when it doesn't grow and all of us as we develop um, we have people who are born who do not have both of their limbs or both of their legs or they are born blind and there are there are many genetic disorders that people are born with because we live in a in a fallen broken world and there are disorders of sexual development as well and that's what the intersex condition is it is a disorder of sexual development it is not a third gender as the advocates of transgender policy um, would have us believe and the reason they need us to believe uh, that there's a third third sex or a fourth sex and I realize I'm kind of using the word sex and gender interchangeably and this would horrify them but um, that is it's an old habit that dies hard the one I'm not actually that ashamed of because they are in large part the same thing sex and gender but sex what they mean and is the, the the anatomy your physiology um, that we are born with a male or female anatomy we are born with a male or female reproductive system now some of those again don't develop as God would have intended but that's not evidence of a third sex it's just evidence that we live in a fallen broken world because all of us I mean if we examined our bodies very closely right we discover that there are things that are imperfect just for some people uh, the the development of the reproductive system is what ends up being imperfect but that does not mean that we have discovered a third sex and all of that matters of course um, because we are trying uh, to stand on and defend the the proposition that what God said in Genesis 1 that he created us male and female is in fact true now we are hopefully we're trying to get on the line Beth Stelzer from Save Women Sports to talk about what's going on to the state legislature uh, Bobby do we have her Okay, we don't have her yet, it doesn't sound like, so we're going to keep going as we discuss this and what's happening, uh, this women's sports issue. Uh, we know that the, and this is relevant to the Equality Act as well. The Equality Act, which was just passed by the House uh, last week, um, has been sent to the Senate, has not yet been uh, brought up for debate in the Senate. They're trying to spend all this money before uh, before they get to the the Equality Act. But what is why is the Equality Act uh, relevant to this conversation? Is because the Equality Act would attempt to mandate that universities, government entities, um, all public schools have to allow 
boys who identify as girls to compete on women's sports teams. Now, what we see in certain states, and you can guess which some of those states are by the color on their electoral college map, they are pushing back a bit. And they are saying that, well, we actually want to, we want to make sure, we want to preserve women's sports for, drum roll please, biological women. And so what we've had this week in Mississippi, Mississippi, in fact, passed a bill. It is not yet law. Mississippi passed a bill saying, defining for the purpose of a sports, that women's sports, that girls' sports are for people who are born female and that male sports are for people who are born male. Now, the question is, what do you do about people who are transgender and and the reality is this is a very small number of people, and they do exist, and they deserve respect and kindness and, um, and the full equal dignity that every human created in God's image deserves, and they are no exception to this. And it is a challenge. Gender dysphoria is a real challenge, and it is a real thing. Um, and should they be allowed to compete in sports? And I think the answer on some level is yes. But... Should they be allowed to compete in sports on their terms exclusively? And should the rest of the world be required to surrender their rights, their opportunities, their security, uh, because uh, somebody else wants to compete with them? And I think the answer to that is no, for reasons that I think to most of us are pretty clear. Because we live in a community, and we all have rights, and those come into conflict. And so what we are seeing... In in Mississippi and in South Dakota, they're advancing some of these laws. Idaho became the first place to pass, the first state to pass a save women's sports law last year. And they and there are now other states picking up that baton uh, to, to make sure that women have the right to compete against women into the future. I'm the father of three daughters, and I certainly would appreciate uh, that opportunity for them. So uh, good for these states, good for Mississippi, good for South Dakota, good for Idaho. If you want this to happen in your state, contact your local state legislator and make sure that it happens where you are. Now, on the other side of the break, we're going to talk to David Clausen about how to think biblically about Christian nationalism. It's scary, isn't it? We'll talk about it when we come back. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, 
because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm is sitting in for Tony Perkins, and it's my pleasure to do so. We've had a great week and a great show, and we're going to end it in the best way with our good friend, David Clausen, Center for Ethics and Biblical Worldview. David, so glad you're back. Well, it's great to be on the Friday show with you again, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my favorite way uh, to end my week, go into the weekend with you, my brother. You've written something that I think is a great um, start to our conversation. Uh, Christian nationalism. This is a phrase that I think, I don't know if it really came into my consciousness in the last 12 months, if this is something that kind of started with the Trump election, whatever it is. But we hear this term a lot. Why are we hearing so much about Christian nationalism? Yeah, it's a a really good question, Joseph. And I think I've maybe heard about it for the last year. I think I wrote a a short piece about this last summer, actually, in the lead up uh, to the 2020 election. Uh, There was a group of left-leaning pastors who put out a statement against Christian nationalism. And at the time, I think Uh, I came out against that statement because I thought essentially what they were trying to do was to drive uh, people like you and I, people like our listeners, conservative, Bible-believing Christians, out of the public uh, square by using this kind of scary buzzword. I I think my thinking's changed a little bit. I think maybe there are some people who maybe do kind of identify with this ideology, Um, but I do still think um, that most of the people who are using this uh, they're not defining it, and they they really are some uh, subversive motives behind the many in culture who are using this kind of scary phrase, Christian nationalism. Well, let's help let's help some people, and let's help me think through this. Um, let, let's define our terms. What do you mean by that? Because I think um, again making sure that we don't just use the same words, but we have the same dictionary, because it's a very common problem in public discourse to use words that we think we know what we mean when we say them, but we don't, we don't 
make sure that we know what we mean, and so we may not be meaning the same thing. So when you say Christian nationalism, how would you define that for yourself or yeah. for us? Yeah, great question. Well, let's start first with just the word nationalism, and, and that's how I kind of believe the piece that you referenced, the thinking biblically about Christian nationalism. You know, nationalism, Webster's defines just as loyalty and devotion to a nation. And that's not bad, so right? It, it's not bad at all. It's just kind of strong identification with one's nation and the interest of that nation. Um, I think nationalism is pretty synonymous with patriotism. It's just that you have a love and a devotion and a connection to your country. And again, I think that's a, a good thing. But when it comes to Christian nationalism, the way that phrase is being used, and I think the way the literature is defining it, um, is kind of a, a it's used in reference to a, a person really conflating or merging together their Christian and their American identities. And so let me flush that out. You know, what I would say is that kind of Christian nationalism um, views one's Christian and American identity as one and the same. And so you, uh, being basically a good American means that you are a, a good Christian. Um, and those who kind of really hold to this ideology would say that they believe maybe Christians deserve a kind of a privileged position in society, and kind of the impulse of those who really hold on to this. And I just want to emphasize, um, based on all the study I've done, Joseph, it is a small, small minority who would actually have this view. But kind of the impulse of the, the, the movement is to kind of exclude ethnic and religious minorities kind of for the purpose of accruing more power. And again, we, we can talk about why we think that's bad. But again, if I'm just well, gonna... why would why would that be? I mean, and certainly, I think what you what you started describing there sounds to me just kind of like xenophobia and outright racism, like just excluding people. Because I don't know, it's certainly not Christian, and I don't know why that's nationalism. So how, why would why would that be uh, connected with this phrase Christian nationalism? From what my understanding, Joseph, is kind of what people are doing that would kind of fall under the heading of Christian nationalism is that, again, they are viewing um, their American identity as the same as their Christian identity. And, and so when it comes to the ultimate commitments of their heart, the ultimate commitment of their life, They've really merged those two things together, okay. and I think, I think that's what's different from Christian nationalism versus just patriotism. Okay, and, and so when we go back to the definition of nationalism, you referred to loyalty and devotion to a nation, which is not a bad thing, and I think no. that there's an element of gratitude, and if you live in it, I mean, if I was in North Korea, would I be patriotic, or would I, would I be a nationalist if I was born there? I don't know. Maybe, I mean, certainly many people are, uh, maybe because they've been brainwashed to be so, and, and maybe in some sense everybody has been brainwashed, brainwashed in favor of the country uh, to which they are born and the, in, the, in the place that they call home, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if nationalism is loyalty and devotion to a nation, then being a Christian who has loyalty and devotion to a nation is not inherently wrong, right? It's not inherently not wrong. Exactly. It's not inherently wrong. I think you, you you cross a line when it kind of when your American identity almost becomes an idol. And again, I don't think many people are doing it. But if we're kind of trying to find that textbook definition, I think that's what it is. And I think that's a fair critique as we, as we kind of to, to me, the point of this conversation about Christian nationalism is not necessarily to uh, 
to settle the question of is it good to be a Christian nationalist or is it bad to be a Christian nationalist? Because that may always be a semantic debate. Um, because in in all formal debate, and I was a, I was a debater in high school and in college, and then I did some in law school as well. Formal debate, but. And, and within the law, he who defines the terms wins the debates. And so yes. the definitional debates matter a lot in formal debate and even in cultural informal debate. But I don't want us to get hung up on that as, as people who are endeavoring to think biblically. What our goal should be is how do I think Christianly, how do I think biblically about my role as a citizen? And then it comes to this idea of loyalty. When, when, if nationalism is loyalty and devotion to a nation, ultimately Christians should have no loyalty that is higher than their loyalty to Jesus. That is our ultimate loyalty. And the point at which, but there are other things we can be loyal to, right? We can be loyal to our favorite football team. We can be loyal to our country. We can be loyal to our spouses. We can be loyal to our kids. But none of those loyalties, if our loyalty to our spouse requires us to sin and reject God, then we have a misplaced loyalty, even if, as we would all agree, a loyalty uh, to a spouse is a good thing in general. It just can't be a greater loyalty. So isn't that what we're working through here, is making sure that our love of country does not uh, supersede our love of Jesus? And if the two should part ways, that we always are going with Jesus rather than our country? Uh, that, that sums it up, I, I think, perfectly, Joseph. I think as, as we just need, as, as American Christians, as much as America means to us, it just can't be the central defining factor in our lives. And so I think that's kind of where I come down with this whole discussion. And I, let, let's be clear, though. You know, Christians should actively be participating in the political process. I think that's what Scripture teaches us. As believers, we have a responsibility to engage in good works. So this is the second part of this conversation. Okay, we're, we're defining Christian nationalism, but we also, you know, as Christians, we need to be wise. We need to realize what's going on in the conversation. And the left, the, the, the secular left, has seized on this phrase, Christian nationalism, <clears throat> ever, ever since the January 6th storming of the Capitol, and is really using it as a cudgel to, to drive out any Christian who is trying to engage in the world of public policy. Um, I, that, uh, the, the, I think you know, it might have been Tony and I talked about it on the show a couple weeks ago, Bill Maher, the, the comedian. Uh, he, when he came on a couple weeks ago on his show that seen by a bunch of people, uh, he actually blamed uh, – he, he said what happened at the Capitol was a faith-based initiative caused by a Christian, Christian nationalistic movement. And so see what he's doing there? He's jumping on this train of just trying to paint with a broad brush any Christian who cares about this country, who cares about the issues that are debated in public policy. And so that's where we need to realize what the left is doing with this phrase, Christian nationalism. And we, we can't go along and allow them to cancel us and silence us. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that we always have to be aware of the rhetorical clubs that are being used. And I'll give us another example of how this is done with the word discrimination much like Christian nationalism, is people say, oh, well, that's discrimination. And what we're supposed to know is that that means that's bad. And they'll say, oh, that's Christian nationalism. That's a Christian involved in, in politics, therefore that's bad. Or that's discrimination. And in fact, 
Christian nationalism, a Christian who loves their country and involved in their government, if that's how you define it, is of course not a bad thing. Discrimination is not always a bad thing. It really just depends on the grounds upon which you will discriminate, right? And we know that the left loves to discriminate. They discriminate now, in the, you know, this week they discriminate against Dr. Seuss. Um, they, they're picking new people to discriminate against all the time because they think the justification for their form of discrimination is appropriate. Now, Christians and secularists or conservatives and liberals and however you want to, you know, you want to divide things have different criteria upon which they would discriminate, but everybody discriminates, right? And so in the same way, and, and so when somebody says, oh, that's discrimination, the, it, it may actually be, and in fact, it may, it may be a wise form of discrimination because all wisdom is is making judgments and discriminating in ways that some are good and some are and some are bad but we have to think through the language because so many words christian nationalism discrimination hate so many words are just lobbed like bombs and because we've been conditioned culturally we're supposed to recognize that the moment we're accused of this that's our cue to stand down and stop you know doing anything, stop disagreeing, stop voicing our opinion, because it's, it's not appreciated. That, that's absolutely right, Jason. That's, again, why we need to realize you know, what these terms mean. Just a couple of weeks ago, you and I discussed the term unity and how you know, that's a morally neutral term. Unity in and of itself is not a good thing. If we're uniting to, to go rob a bank, that's a bad thing. So the, the way we define these terms is so important. And with with this, dis, this discussion about Christian nationalism, again, I think many on the cultural left see this as an opportunity to further a narrative that they've been pushing now for years, which is that Christian political engagement is somehow dangerous for America and really motivated by kind of these nefarious evil intentions. Um, and, and so, again, that's why you're right. The left would love for us to stand down. They, they'd rather, you know, they would love for Christians to be cowering over in the corner, afraid to be called a Christian nationalist. And again, that's why we, we absolutely cannot back down, because as Christians, we're called to engage. One of the best ways we show love for our neighbor is engaging in these big questions of politics and of morality. Uh, that, that's how, again, we, we love our neighbor. That's how we're called to be good citizens and seek the welfare of the city that we're found. And so I think, again, the conversation we're having is one that Christians need to be engaging in across the country. Or else, If the left has its way, they will cancel each and every one of us. And, and, you know, in, in the context of cancel culture, I think that's exactly it, – it's, it's, it's helpful, I think, to think of this as a form of – as an operational one-on-one uh, -on -one form of the cancel culture. And the way that Christians need to equip themselves and be prepared for it uh, and be prepared not to be neutralized by it is to not care if people misrepresent you or misunderstand you. Because lobbying pejoratives like Christian nationalist or bigot or whatever the phrase is, lobbying those at you is an attempt to silence you. And it will silence you to the extent that your primary goal is to protect your reputation and be seen well by people who disagree with you. If that is your primary goal, then when they call you names and that bothers you, you will do whatever you have to do in order to avoid being called those names that you know are not said in, in, in respect, right? And so isn't Absolutely. it important for us to equip ourselves, to prepare ourselves mentally for the fact that if we stand for truth in a, in a culture that is hostile to the truth, we will be misunderstood, we will be misrepresented, and that's okay. And when they do that, that doesn't mean I change what I'm doing. I change what I'm doing when I find out what I'm doing is wrong or God tells me to do something else, yes? 
Absolutely, and I, I think what we're seeing over just these last couple of weeks, I'm, you know, I mentioned Bill Maher. I think he is giving us a refreshingly clear view of how non-believers view people of faith, how they view people like us. And Jesus himself promised that this kind of uh, persecution, John 15, 16, was coming for those who follow him. And so we need to have our spine stiffened. We need to be aware of what's going on, and we, we need to stand for truth in a culture that every day uh, doesn't understand what truth looks like more and more. David, I know that there's somebody listening to our conversation right now who who doesn't like um, Christian nationalists as they understand it, which is probably people like you and I. Um, and they're begging for us to have the conversation about Donald Trump. And because the Christian nationalists' the obsession kind of emerged in that. And so for clarification, are Jesus and Donald Trump the same person? Absolutely not. <laughs> Is that is that a difficult thing for you to admit or no? It is not at all. No, and, and, and it's not. And I and I, I say that, of course, tongue in cheek, um, because it isn't a hard question for people who are Christians. Um, though I will say there are some people who have have a loyalty to uh, politicians that I don't understand. And as with our nation and as with our country, uh, we we have a loyalty to people. Only to the extent that they have loyalty to God. When when they part ways, we go with Jesus. When 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 a, when a politician and Jesus part ways, we go with Jesus. When a nation and Jesus part ways, we go with Jesus. Right? Absolutely. I'm a proud conservative, a proud American, but ultimately my allegiance is with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I think that's how all of us should be thinking, kind of about this conversation. Yeah. But it does provide an opportunity for us to make sure that we're not being. We're not being pulled in directions in places that the gospel doesn't want us to be. So, David Clawson, thanks again for your time. Have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. You too. Thanks, Joseph. And for all the rest of you, have a great weekend. Thank you so much for standing in the gap as you do for our country. Be in prayer even now for the Senate, uh, for our country. May God bless America. Have a great weekend. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.